Annie McLaughlin here for Stick Together, half an hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We come to you from 3CR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation with respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We are coming to you on your community radio station on the Community Radio Network. Today we hear from Arthur Rorris, Secretary of the South Coast Trades and Labor Council in New South Wales. At a recent anti-AUKUS forum, Arthur Rorris gave an outline of why targeting Port Kembla as a parking spot for future nuclear subs is way out of line. How 8,000 jobs are at stake after a decade of work building a sustainable future for Port Kembla His views are in stark contrast to those of the people making decisions for Australia who are way out of touch with the reality on the ground. But first, some union news. Hailed as the first strike on an Australian farm in generations, striking members of United Workers' Union commenced an indefinite strike at Hussey & Co in Somerville, Victoria on June 28th, a large salad production company supplying packaged salads for four Australian states. Red Ant Media reported that Hussey's managed to assemble a small crew of around 15 scab labourers, some new to the site, but failed to get a single loaded truck to leave on the first day. There were three trucks already on site before the strike began, but all eventually had to be unloaded. The Somerville site has over 60 regular workers and is supplied by six company-owned farms. The company, a major supplier to Coles and Aldi supermarkets, as well as other customers across four Australian states and internationally, were put in a position of violating its just-in-time delivery obligations with these and other customers. After successfully striking, picketing and then negotiating an incredible agreement that brings their indefinite strike to an end, the workers lifted themselves off minimum wages and conditions, taking a huge step forward for all farm workers. Led by mostly casual workers from the Malaysian, Indonesian, Rohingya, Cambodian and Hazara communities, Hussi workers have shown that when we unite and strike for what is fair, we can win no matter what the odds. Migrant workers are not only part of our great movement, they are leading it. Hussey workers have won same job, same pay protections for labour hire workers, guaranteed consultation on any new labour hire providers prior to their engagements, 6.5% wage increase now for all workers, including workers on rates already higher than the award and salaried workers, the fair work wage increase plus 1% for each following year of the agreement for all workers, Sunday at 200% for all workers, including casual workers, a huge win in the farm sector. Weekly overtime pay for casuals, not averaged over eight weeks. 
Union Rights and Protections. Members of the CPSU, the Community and Public Sector Union covering the Australian Public Service, voted overwhelmingly in early June to reject the most recent pay offer by the Australian Public Service Commission, the APSC. Of the CPSU's 15,000 members that voted in the ballot, 86% voted down the first pay offer of 10.5% from the Australian Public Service Commission, with the union revealing it's already lodged an application with the Fair Work Commission for a protected action ballot at Services of Australia, the largest agency in the APS by employee headcount. The proposed offer, spanning a three-year period, included pay increases of 4% in the first year, 3.5% in the second year and 3% in the third year, totalling 10.5% increase overall. The response to the government's highly anticipated pay equity proposal was similarly disappointing, according to the union. The union expects negotiations on pay pay equity to continue in future weeks, where they'll be pushing the APSC to up their offer. Those CPSU members who voted no cited increased cost of living pressures, with members saying the first pay offer was below inflation. My HEX help debt got indexed at a higher rate than this, an APS employee said. No, we're near the cost of living increases in inflation, but even more importantly, fails to bridge the gap around past bargaining agreements and the extensive delays and pay we experienced back then, just not good enough, another wrote. Years of subpar wage growth drive the need for a larger increase, as does inflation. Further, without a suitable pay rise for the APS, the gap between The public sector and private sector will continue to grow, pushing more incredible people into the private sector, added another. The CPSU had put forward a 20% claim, which would break down to 9% in the first year, 6% in the second and 5% in the third. In MEAA, Media Entertainment Art Alliance News, in Western Australia, workers of the West Australian have slammed management's suggestion that staff identify cost offsets. Management speak for cuts in pay of entitlements to fund their enterprise bargaining agreement claims. While at the ABC, the MEAA has lodged a dispute in the Fair Work Commission about lack of consultation over the restructure in which about 40 positions in news and current affairs are to be axed as part of the 120 redundancies across the whole organisation. Despite several letters over the past week where the MEAA House Committee called the ABC management to carry out a fairer process in the restructure, management has not agreed to the consultation requirements of the EBA. ABC staff deserve to be given the chance to be properly briefed on potential changes to their jobs and the programs they work on, the union said, to share their concerns and to work collaboratively with management towards solutions. 
MEAA Media Director Cassie Derrick said the targeting of long-standing experienced journalists will hurt the ABC's reporting now and well into the future. The ABC has been running on empty for the past decade and we are concerned about how it can continue to deliver quality public interest journalism with even fewer staff following these cuts, she said. Finally, a sobering word from Safety Net coming out of Victoria Trades Hall. Safety Net reports that Australian employers are always behind mining fatalities after the findings of a 10 pathway to death and disaster test, which established employer culpability was present in all fatalities and serious injuries in Australian coal and metal mining. Helen Jackson, a researcher at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales, examined 51 fatal or serious incidents in mines in New South Wales. Writing in the journal Safety Science, she noted that unlike multiple fatalities, incidents involving single fatalities tend to place a greater focus on individual behaviour. However, the structural latent failures of the 10-pathway model were present and generally in substantial numbers. Further detailed examination of these incidents shows system failures often underpin individual behaviour decision failures. You're on Stick Together, worker stories, union news and social justice issues. Recently at an anti-AUKUS forum where several speakers talked about how the push for nuclear subs as a defence measure had a significant downside for Australia, Arthur Rorris, Secretary of the South Coast Trades and Labor Council in New South Wales, outlined a clear message about how such a policy trashes Australian jobs in Port Kembla and walks all over a sustainable future for Australian workers. I'm going to tell you a bit of a story. And it's not a, it's not a happy story, the way we see it though it could turn out to have a happy ending. The stories of a city called Wollongong and an industrial region of the Illawarra, which has grown out of the coal mines, which then enabled the steelworks to be established and became the premier steelmaking region of the country. We built the SO platforms there. We built the Sydney Harbour Tunnel, welded them together there, Many a big project is built there because the city works to make big things. People would migrate from 140 countries when they needed 23,000 workers in that steelworks. The joke was that they didn't migrate to Australia, they migrated to Port Kembla. That multicultural nature, I guess, of the region is one of its great strengths. And at no time have I seen it more than the very proud time of the campaign here. Because what people bring to them in this campaign is not just an understanding of what is happening now, of the threats to our region and to our economy and our jobs, but they bring with them their heritage and their history, which is a war and post-war history, one of war one of poverty, one of famine. It is no wonder that it is one of the most favoured 
places. We don't advertise it too much so we don't attract some unruly elements. One of the favourite places to settle and resettle refugees because they're so readily accepted. We had no idea that they were planning, as in Scott Morrison, I'll jump to the current discourse here and the current history, that Scott Morrison would be pulling out of somewhere this idea of AUKUS before a federal election. We all put this down to a bad dream or a bad hair day or just a guy who's just lost his marbles. That's what we thought. But as you'll see from this story, we were wrong. This wasn't something that Scott Morrison dreamt up. This was being planned a lot longer before. It was dropped, landed before an election as a way to tie up both sides of Parliament. It was the ultimate stealth job by the faceless people, the people you don't see making the decisions, the people giving the advice that we're not allowed to see, that scares our politicians so much that they've got a sign on the dotted line. These decisions do not happen by accident and, these, and announcements of this calibre are not created by the Australians. I can assure you and I'll explain why. But at that time, he said three words. It's going to need an East Coast base and it will be either in Brisbane, Newcastle or Port Kembla. Deep down, we knew where they were heading even back then. When we moved into the Albanese period, we were all just told, look, forget about it. Don't get sucked into it. It's never going to happen. He's going to walk it back. Well, he doubled down, I'm afraid. He didn't walk it back. But worse still, for us, we stayed on a short list. Two days before they signed on the dotted line in San Diego, the ABC was contacted by senior government, military and industry sources who confirmed that it's going to be Port Kembla. You don't get leaks like that just from a few loose lips. That's a coordinated job. Afterwards, I was told that... Oh, that's just defence. Defence always leaks like a sieve. I said, I know, because I'm getting more defence people than I can imagine ringing me, telling me what a shit deal AUKUS is. I understand. What I don't understand is what makes them think they're going to get away with this. So the charm offensive, not, which started and pretty much ended pretty quickly when they, before they started sort of working out there was going to be a problem, began with the idea that there was going to be all these jobs. Little did they know then that jobs actually was going to be at the centre of a lot of the concerns. Not getting them, losing them. And let me explain why. In this city and in this region that is known for its coal mining and its steel works, we, I've always called it Carbon Central because it's the coal mining that actually is used to make steel. Right? I mean, that's what we do. Um, there's the port which ships it in, the iron ore, the coal, in, out, and the steel exported. That's how the place works. Add to that the cement works and now the largest importation centre for cars as well into the place. And you get a pretty packed port, right? It's a civilian port. It's a trading port that grew out of that need and that supports the premier steel-making side of the country. But it also, in 2010, 
generated 7% of the entire greenhouse emissions for the state of New South Wales. As the Secretary of the South Coast Labor Council, you think I was a bit nervous about that? Well, just a touch. We knew what was coming. So for the last 15 years, we've sought to work out how we can actually look at the future, the revolution that we saw was inevitable in energy and decarbonisation and how we would prepare our region. And in that 15 years, we got a coalition which included our coal miners and our steel workers and our maritime workers and our university and education and construction and everyone in between and the university and the business chambers and Blue Scope Steel themselves, as well as every local council to the Victorian border to sign on to the project. But the forces of darkness in the uh, multinational world of, of, uh, of carbon, as we know, set us back a good 10 years, including our dreams of where we would take the place in Port Kembla. We didn't give up. And 15 years later, at this point, we are on the verge, according to New South Wales Treasury, of securing $43 billion in investment in renewables in the Illawarra and 8,000 jobs, not including even the wind farms that we'll have outside. How significant is that? And they're not my figures. That's New South Wales Treasury. Only problem is that this is the same place that they say they wanted for their nuclear submarines. Where are you going to put them? Where the hell do you put eight submarines and all the infrastructure to support them in Port Kembla? The head of New South Wales Ports, the chief executive officer, has said not on one occasion but three occasions publicly there is no room in Port Kembla for a defence facility, right? Pretty straightforward. But you see, when they announced it, they hadn't even rung her. They hadn't even contacted the head of Ports New South Wales. This is how the guys in the shadows operate, right? They don't even talk. They don't need to. They can make anything work. Without naming them, a certain politician told me, when you've got a checkbook that big, you don't need to consult. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are listening to a speech given by Arthur Rorris, Secretary of the South Coast Trades and Labor Council, at an anti-AUKUS forum recently. So, from that point, it became clear that this could be a disaster. The port supports 10,000 jobs as it is, and we had at least another 8,000 coming in as we move to decarbonising. And how important is that? You need the wind farms outside to generate the clean energy to make the green hydrogen that you then need to, to, to reduce the coal and the iron ore in the steelmaking process. It replaces coal and becomes a reductant. Won't happen for some time, granted, but you need to set it up now so that you've got that hydrogen supply there, which you can then use for other sources and even export itself. It's big. Big dollars and big jobs. So when we started to mount this campaign, we said, what's, what's your offer? I said, oh, we could have easily up to 10,000 jobs. 
And I said, well, they're telling us 20,000 jobs over 30 years for the whole country, including where they're building these things. You see, even though we've got the steelworks, no-one's saying they're going to build the nuclear submarines here. And then it dawned on us that this wasn't actually going to be a base. It was going to be a parking lot, right? There was going to be a parking lot where they could park, have some R&R. And it became even clearer when we looked at the timeframes that they weren't going to be Australian submarines. And the promises that they wouldn't be nuclear-armed couldn't be kept because the submarines that would be coming in to our harbour, our port, at least in the first instance, were going to be American vessels. And as we know, the US Navy does not confirm or deny whether their vessels carry, their naval vessels carry, nuclear weapons. So they can't honour that promise. Worse still, it becomes clear to us that if this goes anywhere near fruition, that the port that we know that has grown out of these industries, which will morph into the industries of the future, which will give our blue and white colour and and research and other people the opportunity to work, would be under threat. The 10,000 plus the 8,000, who would be tapped on the shoulder? Why am I worried about that? Because I'm one of the secretaries who's had to front up in a room of steel workers five times as big as this when we had to make huge sacrifices just to save the Australian steel industry. And in my time in the Illawarra, that's happened three times. The company has threatened to walk. These people with deep wallets and blank cheques would think nothing of making an offer to anyone to move to park them in. And as one unnamed here, US ex-military official told me, you really think they would stop with just a berth for their submarines? Once the US Navy moves in, son, they stay and they'll take the lot. They don't come in for nothing. So what we're looking at are not Australian bases. This is a de facto option, basically, for the US to stage. It's a staging post for their operations. Just like Darwin, we've had that mission creep. The same would happen on the East Coast. Why do we say that? Because for the last 50 years, it's been pretty clear that the Americans have always wanted an East Coast base. Under Australian law, you can't have a foreign military base, but we know what what joint installations are like, don't we, Pete? There's a few in this country, and they're joint in name only, and as I said to the media recently, the only thing Australian will be the Australian flag, And even that, we reckon, would probably be made in China, ironically. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this was what was facing us. And the worst part about it all, the worst part, there has not been a conversation with the local community, let alone the traditional loans. Not one. There is not a conversation. When you want to take a region and a port that is geared in the way that we have, and turn it essentially into a foreign base and a staging post for the the military-industrial complex of the United States, as former President Eisenhower called it. There is no other word for this or term than what they're trying to do to our community is to conscript us into their war machine. That's what they're doing. 
Because when you don't have a conversation and when you don't have the consent of people, you're not conscripting individuals, you're conscripting entire communities. And this community will not be conscripted into anyone's war machine. So... When an understanding of this filters through your community, the first stage is shock, disbelief, and then people come to the realisation that something needs to be done. We're fortunate in that Port Kembla precinct, according to the ACTU, is the most densely unionised patch anywhere in the country. That, along with our history, a very proud history in that region, means that we know what we need to do. We organised along community and union lines more broadly. And when government said to us... Well, actually, not even government. When broader forces said to us, who are you speaking for? We knew that on May 6, we had to get a big show. And when thousands of people marched down the street of Wentworth Street in Port Kembla, marched through that street and filled it, and we were joined by nurses and teachers, not just the blue collar, but the nurses and the teachers and the, and the community of Port Kembla and our friends in Sydney and our friends in Newcastle and our friends came down from the Blue Mountains and the South Coast, we knew that we had the support of the community in this, that we were not alone in this and that we had the solidarity and that we had an obligation to keep going until we win. Because in Port Kembla, we have a history of fighting this sort of thing. Peace is union business is not new. In 1938, our wharfies refused to load a ship. It was going to be packed in with pig iron, uh, with pig iron and it was headed for Imperial Japan just before the war in 1938. The wharfies refused. And what ensured... ensued was a dispute that marked a change in the way that many unions around the world operated. It was one of the first cases of social unionism. The steelworkers refused to scab on their wharfies, so they shut the steelworks down as well over Christmas. The market gardeners in Sydney, Chinese market gardeners as it turned out, fed virtually the whole of Port Kembla at that time over that Christmas period. And the government said, sent one Bob Menzies, Robert Menzies, to sort him out in Wollongong. He left with tomato stains on his shirt as 10,000 people lined the streets. And the nickname of Pig Iron Bob, which would last him his, own, his entire uh, lifetime and career in politics. What they did then is act on that principle, that gut principle, that you cannot stand by and do nothing as workers, as the working class, more broadly, the people that we represent, because we know that it's workers' blood that gets spilt in wars. It's workers' blood that gets spilt. That, more than any other reason, is why peace is union business. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. You can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by ringing 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. 
My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together. (laughs) We'll be right back.